Well, we have taken quite a journey already in our time in the book of Genesis, and I've compared the story of Abraham in the past to being uh, sort of like riding a roller coaster. One minute, it seems like he's the great man of faith that we would come to expect, and the next moment, you can't help but sort of shake your head and wonder uh, what the guy was thinking. And today, we come to what is quite likely the most significant moment in Abraham's life. Today's sermon text in our series in Genesis is considered by many to be one of the most intriguing passages in the Bible. If you remember, God promised Abraham that he would bless him, that he would give him a son, that he would make him into a great nation, and that the whole world would be blessed through him. And despite taking matters into his own hands and going through seasons of doubt, God, of course, came through on his promise. Sarah gave birth to their son, Isaac. Uh, We left two Sundays ago with the beautiful gospel reminder that while Abraham did struggle to believe at times, he's looked back upon by, by the New Testament as if he had never wavered in his faith and trust in God. And so today we arrive at what is the most difficult test of faith that Abraham would ever experience. Our sermon text for today from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. This is God's word to us. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, father... Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place 
the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Let's pray. Almighty and loving God, these are your words. And so we ask that you would speak to us today as we consider this story of your provision. We believe that your word is good and it is powerful and it is true. And so speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe there are a few essential aspects of this narrative, of this story that are important for us to consider. So we're going to look first at the test, second at the provision, and then finally at the bigger story. So first let's look at the test that we see in our text. We see this show up right away in verse 1 where it says, sometime later God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And just to clear up any misunderstandings from the beginning, God's word makes it abundantly clear what's happening in this text. God is testing Abraham. A few things we need to remind ourselves of from the beginning as we think about this passage. There's a few things that are just important to keep in mind. The first one is, is this. Uh, first one is more practical, and that's that the Judeo-Christian tradition has no history of child sacrifice. So this isn't part of a larger story that Abraham would have known and understood as part of his tradition. God did not demand the sacrifice of children in any place in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's not what is happening here, so we just sort of set that aside and recognize there's no reason to understand this, as some of the critics of the scriptures have, as part of a larger story about the God of the Bible. The second thing that we have to remind ourselves of is that all that God does is good and right. God has revealed himself as a God of love, a God who has been abundantly patient with the mess that humanity has created for themselves. And so we approach this text with the presupposition, with the assumption, with the posture that God always does what is good and what is right. In other words, God is not acting nefariously in our text. He's, he's not a cosmic sadist who derives pleasure from the suffering of another. Perhaps more re relatably, God is not that cruel teacher that all of us had at one point or another who found great joy in giving an exam that nobody other than the prodigy in the class could pass just for the purposes of watching children suffer, just for the joy of handing out failing grades. That's, that's not what God is doing 
in the story. All that God does is good and right and rooted in love. And that brings me to the the third reminder as we approach this text. The third thing that we need to keep in mind as we read this passage. And that's that what seems cruel and cold from a human perspective can actually be loving and gracious from an eternal perspective. Let me say that again. What seems cruel and cold from a human perspective can actually be loving and gracious from an eternal perspective. Uh, Last week we sang a great uh, modern hymn, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. And there's a line in that hymn that just hits me every time we sing it. Listen to these words. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? And and this is the line uh, that fascinates me. Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? So think about that mental picture that the hymn writer is, is painting for us. You're hopelessly caught in a storm in the ocean in a, in a small boat. Waves crashing over the side of the boat. The, the wind and rain making it impossible to see more than a, than a few feet in any direction. In that moment, if you place yourself in that moment, it seems like those waves are the enemy, right? That they're, they're the thing that's going to sink the boat and cause you to drown. If you could only stop those waves, hour after hour, waves crashing with no end in sight, until suddenly you hear a loud clunk, the bottom of the boat striking a rock. And as you gaze through the rain, you see it's not just any rock, it's, it's the shoreline. And you step from the boat onto that rock, onto dry land. What we know when, when we view things from an eternal perspective is that those waves, those trials, those seasons of suffering, those times of testing, those moments of pain are oftentimes waves that God is using to drive us to the shore, to the rock of Christ. We've all experienced those types of trials in our lives where in the moment we couldn't see any good that could possibly come from this, but from an eternal perspective, with the proper distance and perspective, we can see that God was using those waves to bring us nigh unto the shore, unto the rock. God calls Abraham to offer up his son, the son whom he had waited for for decades, whom God had promised to just be willing to hand him over but not only to hand him over, to be the one through whom his death came. And in what uh, might come as a shock, if you were just reading through Genesis and following Abraham's struggles and doubt, Abraham just simply obeys. He is fully obedient to the Lord. He does exactly what God commands him to do. In verse 3, we see that he gets up early, he cuts the firewood for the burnt offering, and they begin a three-day journey. And when they arrive, they climb the mountain. Abraham carries the fire and the knife, and Isaac, that son of the promise, carries the wood upon which he would be sacrificed. I want you to put yourself inside the mind of Abraham. I don't, I don't know if it's actually possible. I don't think it is. But just try for a moment to see this scenario 
playing out from Abraham's perspective. There are a couple of scripture passages that give us a little bit of insight into what was going on in Abraham's mind. The first one is Genesis 22, verse 5. I don't know if you noticed it when I read the text. Abraham is talking to the servants and he says this, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Think about that. Abraham seems to have great confidence that he and his son Isaac will be returning. Why does he have that confidence? Hebrews 11 gives us insight into this. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 says this, that Abraham in that moment reasoned that God could raise the dead. Abraham believed that even if he had to follow through on what God had commanded him to do, that God would raise his son from the dead. Abraham had full confidence in the goodness, in the faithfulness of God. He knew that Isaac was a miracle, that Isaac was a gift. Whatever God chose to do with Isaac was good and right and his business alone. He was confident that Isaac would live because of all that God had promised to accomplish through him. And so Abraham obeyed the Lord. So there's the the test. Now let's look at the next aspect of the story, the provision. As they make their way to the place that God had shown Abraham, it it dawns on Isaac that something is wrong here. Verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but, uh, but something's missing. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds in verse 8. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And moments later, when the altar is constructed and Isaac is laid on top of it, knife raised in the air, Abraham prepared to act in full obedience to God. We know the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, calls out to Abraham and says, do not lay a hand on the boy. And you can imagine the tear-drenched eyes of Abraham Verse 13 tells us he looks up and he sees a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. God truly had provided. And Abraham doesn't have to be told what to do. He knows what to do. He goes over and he sacrifices the ram. And he places it on the altar in the place of his son Isaac and he offers the sacrifice to the Lord. And in verse 14, we see that Abraham gives that place a name. He calls it, the Lord will provide. And then Moses, the human author of Genesis, adds in some additional commentary. He says, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And then in verses 15 through 18, we hear the the voice of God again. Reminding Abraham of his promises that he will bless all nations of the earth through this son, through Isaac. And this is the the point of the story 
at which most or, or many at least Bible studies or children's Bibles have been tempted to then make the story about our obedience. That's how this normally plays out if you've read it. It usually goes something like this. See how Abraham obeyed God and God blessed him for it. Now you go and obey the Lord and the Lord will bless you too. We've all heard this story. If you've read any children's Bibles, if you've been in Sunday school, you've heard the story presented this way. But I would argue that if our conclusion, if if we read this text and we, we land at the spot of saying that the main application of the story is our obedience, that we've missed the point entirely. Walking away from this account with with merely a call to deeper, more heartfelt obedience would be sort of like being invited to a a fancy steakhouse when your friend is paying the bill and ordering a veggie burger. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem right. Of course, the account that Genesis gives us of Abraham and of Isaac on the mountain is about obedience. It's about God's provision. But we aren't supposed to read the story of Abraham and Isaac and be left merely thinking about our own response, our own obedience. It's intended instead to draw us into a larger story. And so third, I want us to see how this account brings us into the bigger story. You see, this story is filled with what we call typology. What does that mean? Typology is when there are images or events or People in the Old Testament that serve as types, as examples, as prefigurements of something that is to come later. They prefigure what would be coming in the New Testament. There's so much packed into this story that you can't ignore the reality that it is merely a picture of something greater. One commentator that I read said that the story of Abraham and Isaac is sort of like a a pencil drawing, a black and white pencil drawing that an artist might produce as they're preparing for their much larger, more beautiful, more intricate painting. And of course, what we're talking about is the true and better Isaac who would be sacrificed for the sin of the world. You can probably see some basic parallels just on a quick reading through the text between the story of Abraham and Isaac and that of Jesus' death for us. There are actually many ways that this account prefigures the bigger story, ushers us into this larger story of redemption. I want to share a handful of them with you this morning. The first one we find is in verse 2. Verse 2, notice God's instruction. It says, God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love. There are a couple things that are important here. Uh, One being the fact that Isaac wasn't actually Abraham's only son. Did that strike you as we read the text? Of course, Ishmael was every bit as much Abraham's son as Isaac was. This only son thing is repeated three times in our passage for today. Verse 12 and again in verse 16. And, And it becomes clear that either God has forgotten Ishmael, which we know isn't true, or that God was actually pointing the reader forward to something greater, something bigger. That this really isn't about Isaac and Abraham. That it's about somebody else. God was pointing us forward to his 
only son. The wording of verse 2, when it says, your only son whom you love, does that wording ring any bells in, in your biblical memory? It should trigger a couple of scenes. For example, at Jesus' baptism, Mark chapter 1, God speaks, and what does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love. Same language. Or we could go to our, our scripture text from last Sunday, the transfiguration of Christ. And, and again, God speaks and God says, this is my son whom I love. This isn't just about Abraham and Isaac. The next one that I want to point out is from verse 4. It says this, on the third day, Abraham looked up. Think about that language, on the third day. There's an incredible amount of three days language in the Old Testament. I listed a number of passages here. There's more than that, but this gives you a pretty good start if you wanted to sort of trace this language through the Old Testament. But it's, it's very common. We see it with Joseph in Egypt, with the Israelites a couple of times in the wilderness, with Queen Esther, with Hosea, Jonah in the belly of the fish. And then, of course, all leading up to, all pointing us forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is stock imagery that the Old Testament uses to connect us with the bigger story. The third example I, I want to share with you today is from verse 6. It says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. I don't know if that stuck out to you when I read that. When we read this text through the lens of the cross, we can't help but see the, the significance of this event that Isaac, the, the son of the promise, would, would carry the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain, just as Jesus would carry the wooden cross on which he would be sacrificed for the sin of the world. Another example, verse 7. It says, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. And my mind can't help but jump ahead to the moment when John the baptizer would cry out, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or that beautiful scene from Revelation chapter 5. Some of you are familiar with that text. When, when the worshipers fall down before Jesus and they cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There's one final account, one final way that this account, that this story points us forward to what was to come. And that has to do with the mountain itself. It might not be as obvious to you. In verse 2, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. And so it's on Mount Moriah that God provides the substitute to die in Isaac's place. But if we jump forward to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we see this place again. We find an interesting set of events. You could take time to read that if you wanted, but David is king, and he, there's a series of events 
that are offensive to the Lord. David didn't trust God. He was leading under his own strength and wisdom. He took credit for things that God deserved credit for. And so God is going to carry out his discipline, his correction against David and against Israel. And so the deal is that there would be three days of plagues against Israel. Three days again. What David doesn't understand is is that God is doing something fascinating with this judgment that he's carrying out against Israel. David looks up and he sees an angel with his sword drawn over Jerusalem. And God sends a man to tell David to go and to purchase a threshing operation. And so the king goes up to this location and he purchases this threshing floor, the the land, the wheat, the oxen, the, the whole operation from the owner. And David proceeds to offer this to the Lord to appease God's wrath. He sacrifices the oxen. He offers them along with the wheat to the Lord. And fire falls from heaven and the offering is received. And First Chronicles tells us that the angel of the Lord puts his sword back into his sheath. And here's why this matters. If we turn to Second Chronicles chapter 3, we would see that the location of that threshing floor was Mount Moriah. On that mountain, God provided the ram for the sacrifice in the place of Isaac. And on that mountain, God provided and received the offering of the oxen to be sacrificed in the place of Jerusalem. And if you keep reading in 2 Chronicles, you'd find out that the old threshing floor location would be the very spot where King Solomon would build his temple. It would be the place where day after day, year after year, the blood of the sacrifice would be shed for the sins of God's people. And there was much more in store for this location, of course, because we know that the true son of the promise, the true and better Isaac, the true and better David, the seed of the woman, the son whom God loved, the lamb of God, would be on that threshing floor, would be in that temple, would be upon that holy mountain, that he would carry wood on his back outside the city gates. And when they arrived at the place of the skull, not far from that threshing floor, he would be crucified for the sin of the world. I want you to listen to verses 13 and 14 again. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And it was. The father sacrificed the son whom he loved. And so while we can use the story of Abraham and Isaac as an opportunity to to talk about obedience, we must always keep in mind, we must always remember, we must always keep in front of us that the one who was truly obedient on that mountain, the one who obeyed God's will to the end. What's so beautiful about 
Genesis chapter 22 is that we don't just walk away with a helpful lesson for our life or a renewed desire to obey the Lord. This text gives us Jesus in all of his fullness. The Lamb of God who died in your place. The Lord has provided, or as Jesus would declare from that mountain, it is finished. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this account of Abraham and Isaac, and we, we do thank you for Abraham's obedience, which of course is, is a model of faith for us. We, when we see all that you've done for us, we desire to live in obedience. But more importantly, we thank you that Abraham was saved not by his obedience, but because he believed your promises. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Lord, above all, we're thankful that the reality that this story gives us your son, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God slain for us. That this account of Abraham and Isaac delivers to us Jesus. And so may we willingly receive what your word gives today. Send us away today, not with a list of things to do, but with the confidence, the hope, that on that holy mountain, Jesus did it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.